When we think of the influential Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, writer of such classics as The Chronicles of Narnia and Mere Christianity, we think of a mature and articulate scholar. But what would he have been like as a boy, as a teenager, trying to find himself? Who influenced him? What educational experiences shaped his thinking? What did he like to eat? My guest today, Dr. Hal Poe, is one of the world's leading experts on C.S. Lewis, and he brings alive this season in young Lewis's life with discoveries that will impact our homes and our schools today. Stay tuned for this episode of Basecamp Live. Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Davies Owens here. We are in an exciting season at Basecamp Live, thinking a lot about what is version 2.0 or 3.0, however you want to count it, look like. We've been doing this now, as you know, for about five years. I believe this is episode 228. And we're thinking about what would be helpful as we go forward to enhance even further what we're doing. We know the website needs to be refreshed. There are a lot of episodes in there. There is a search engine. You can search around and try to find various uh, topics and speakers over the many, many episodes. We're looking at indexing that in a more winsome way, helping to sort it for folks who are uh, parents, who are a large population of our podcast audience, those of you who are listening, just to help you sort out uh, questions and sort out issues in life too. And then with educators, there are a lot of topics and there are now a lot of schools use Basecamp Live podcasts for teacher training and so on. And so at any rate, we'd love to get your input. We're hoping in 2023 to add a video component. If you've always wondered, what does Davies look like? You can actually see, and we'll have that on YouTube as well as our guest using a different platform for recording. So all kinds of enhancements that are coming and we would love your input. So you're going to be hearing from me in the next couple of weeks an invitation to take a survey, take just a few minutes, but give us good impact, input on ways that we can impact um, you and your home and your school positively with classical Christian education. So thanks again for listening. A lot more coming. Hey, special thanks on this episode to our sponsors, the Focus Group, CLT, that's the Classic Learning Test, CAP, Classical Academic Press, and the Rafiki Foundation. My guest today, Dr. Harold Poe, is the Charles Colson Professor of Faith and Culture at Union University, and he has completed arguably the most extensive C.S. Lewis biography. He's done it in three parts. Part one that I'll be talking with him about in this interview is the book Becoming C.S. Lewis, really looking at Lewis's early childhood years. And then volume two is on the middle years, and then the third volume um, ends with Lewis's death in 1963. This first volume that we're discussing really looks at the impact of Lewis's early life and his eventual conversion to Christianity, which is often overlooked by bi- biographies on Lewis, which makes Dr. Poe's work so fascinating. It took him about five years to complete this trilogy, and he's been teaching Christian studies class at Union University on L- Lewis's life and work now for over 20 years. So a lot of what he's discovered in these conversations and research have been fleshed out in the classroom. So absolutely um, enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Poe and look forward to having him back as we look at part two and part three. But for now, let's begin with Becoming C.S. Lewis, the interview with Dr. Harold Poe. Well, Dr. Harold Poe, welcome to Basecamp Live. 
Thank you. It's good to be with you. It is so good to chat with you. You know, there's kind of a running joke in classical Christian circles that you can't gather our educators, even our parents, together without C.S. Lewis being quoted. Um, I think that's probably true in most evangelical Christianity. He is a kind of part of the Hall of Fame, so to speak. And uh, well, he he certainly uh, gained that reputation, and I think rightfully so. Yeah, he is. Well, he's he is definitely a a figure that most of us probably listening are familiar with him. But what I am so intrigued with the work you're doing and have done is this three-part trilogy on becoming C.S. Lewis. And in particular, we're going to focus on this episode. Uh, maybe we'll bring you back for part two and three eventually, because this is so rich and so interesting, but really looking at his life in those early days. Um, and before we really get into that, I'm just curious, how did you become so intrigued with C.S. Lewis? It was a gradual thing. Um, I didn't know about him growing up. It was not until I was in seminary that I'd even uh, heard of C.S. Lewis. Um, and, uh, friends talked about the Chronicles of Narnia. I didn't know what that was and mere Christianity. So a friend loaned me, uh, mere Christianity. And I said, oh, well, that's very interesting. And, um, I didn't read the Chronicles of Narnia until I was in my PhD work. Um, I read a book a week, a book a night for a week. Um, and said, well, he seems to know what he's doing, but my, my big concern in ministry has been, um, how do we, uh, communicate the gospel in a dramatically changing culture in which we no longer can assume people know anything about the Bible or even mean the same thing when they use the three letter word God. And, um, I I realized that C.S. Lewis uh, had a deep and profound understanding of uh, the problems of communicating within cultures and across cultures. And that came out in his, his, um, ac- his, his academic work. His first great book was uh, a study of medieval allegorical courtly love poetry, which is a mouthful. Mm-hmm. But he does a, a grand panorama from the first century uh, during uh, the classical Roman period uh, up through the medieval world to the dawn of the modern age, um, the last great allegory, uh, allegorical poem was uh, Spencer's The Fairy Queen in 1595. But what you've got in that grand sweep is this profound understanding of uh, different cultures and um uh, how they contribute to one another, but are, are different and, uh, the importance of being able to translate. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, he, he, um, he, he wrote in an essay, um, he'd been severely criticized by Dr. Pittenger at union seminary in New York, uh, for his apologetic work. And Lewis said, essentially look guy <laughs> didn't say that but essentially it was if you can imagine him taking off his gloves yeah um if you theologians had been doing this work of translating the gospel to our culture for the last hundred years i wouldn't have to do this yeah yeah um, <laughs> well and I... so for me he's been a guide to me as to what we do now in a culture that's radically different from the one in which he lived but which he foresaw yeah. Well, and he, yes, he was very much a, a, a 
living in a moment that was uh, difficult and much like ours, but he was able to forecast a lot of things we are living through right now. And and so, uh, how as you think about you know the the seasons of his life, I think most of us when you know we think of C.S. Lewis and our mental picture is this very much Don Professor there, probably at the Eagle, and the child there, and uh, in Oxford, uh, sipping a beer and having a meaningful conversation with pipes going with Lewis, uh, with Tolkien around him. There was a se- that was a season of his life. But what you have uncovered is this young Jack Lewis, and I know he was born in 1898, and you kind of have segmented it into 1918. Take us into this this season of his life of his childhood, because most of us listening are in the process of either parenting children in that same season or educating children in that younger season. There's a lot there with, with Lewis's life. Uh, take us into that. Most of us don't know about it. And it sounds like you were really maybe one of few people really focused on that segment of his life. Yes, it's an extremely important. Um, during his, his um, teenage years uh, in particular, all the basic um, likes and dislikes, preferences, major opinions uh, that he had, um, except for his Christian faith. Now that's a big except, but let's let's just deal with things he, he liked, for instance, taking long walks um, and hating math, um, but the kind of literature that he liked and, and on and on and on and on. Um, all of that formed in his teenage years. And it reminded me how critically important the teenage years are in forming a person. That's not to minimize uh, childhood. That's critically important too. But it's it's those um, teenage years from young adolescence, say the sixth grade through senior year in high school, that um, uh, people go through such dramatic changes from both uh, physically and intellectually. And, um, and so during that period, uh, Lewis um, essentially developed the track on which his conversion took place. Uh, but he also developed those interests that then formed his career as a professor of literature and laid the foundation for all of his apologetic work. Wow. Uh, but that happened in his teenage years. So if we could, if we could, you know, time machine back and be a fly on the wall in his home, and he's a seventh grader uh, in his home, uh, what would it, who was in the home with him, and what, what would it have sort of looked like on a typical day? Well, first of all, in seventh grade, he wasn't in his home. Um, his mother was dead from cancer. She died when he was nine years old. And his father, deeply, deeply grieving, was honoring her last wish. She wanted her boys to have every uh, advantage in life. And that meant career advantage, social advantage, which means that um, she wanted their Irish accent eradicated. In the British Empire, the Irish were looked down on as subhuman. Right. And for him to have a chance, he had to sound like an Englishman which meant he had to go to school in England, not Ireland. So uh, he was shipped off with his brother to a, uh, a small school in Watford, uh, a town um, oh, a, f- a few miles north of London, market town. 
And there he was in school under the tutelage of a headmaster, a clergyman, Church of English clergyman, who had, uh, you've heard the, of the phrase certifiably insane. <laughs> yes. He had been declared by the court to be insane, but it didn't affect the fact that he was still running a, a school. And his uh, style of teaching, if you, he taught math. And if you got the answer wrong, you were beaten with a cane. Oh, no. Yes. No wonder uh, Lewis didn't like math. <laughs> no, because if you got the answer right, you were beaten with a cane. It just didn't matter. Wow. Um, and so, yes, I think this is the reason Lewis did not like math was because of his teacher, which um, I think it says uh, something to us about just the teaching profession. Um, if a teacher doesn't love their subject and want their students to love their subject, their students aren't going to love the subject. <laughs> yeah, especially if they're being beat either way. So, <laughs> yeah. That's never going to go well. So anyway, so he was in this, this school where the Irish were looked down on. The other boys, the English boys, looked down on Lewis, ostracized him. The headmaster punished him for being Irish. Um, it was even worse to his older brother, Warney. Um, finally, his father took him out of that school. The school soon collapsed. Um, all the other parents took their children out. And he went to uh, several other uh, boarding schools. Um, the, there was the one um, that would correspond to our middle school, and then finally uh, Malvern College, but college isn't what we mean over here as the four-year uh, higher education. Over there, it can very easily mean and usually does mean high school. Uh, it's a boarding school, um, and he didn't get along well there because uh, he was no good at, at sports, um, one, one of the things that uh, uh, distinguishes humans from um, the apes is we have a thumb that bends in the middle. And thus we're able to use tools and all sorts of things. Lewis and his brother Warney did not have bendable thumbs. I have ne that is fascinating. Wow. And as a result, they were, they were clumsy. He couldn't... Um, he couldn't use scissors. I mean, imagine trying to use scissors if you can't bend your thumb. Now, was that like and a genetic it, disorder or did they both break their thumbs? Yes. Okay. All right. Yes. Uh -huh. And um, so they, they, but they were, it, it contributed to a general clumsiness. So he was terrible at sports. And in the English speaking world, if you can't play sports, you are not a valid form of life. Wow. You, you yeah. have no right to live. And the other boys made Lewis aware of that. So he was he was treated um, terribly shabbily. And as a result, his his defense of that was to become uh, arrogant, conceited, um, snobbish about his um, his brain. So he looked down on everybody else as inferior to him and just brutes and and that so sort of thing. So that was the one one advantage he had was his sharp mind. But it sounds like in his, I mean, I'm sure any Christian counselor listening to this thinks it's it's remarkable he didn't just ball up in the corner between the bullying and the abuse at the school and the and the, and the bullying of the friends. I mean, lack of friends perhaps. So he 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 advances, but he's it sounds like a pretty uh, disillusioned, air, angry, and maybe arrogant guy. Yes, and and. Um... He had no friends. 
He did not gain his first friend until Easter of 1914 um, when he was 15 and a half years old. Imagine going through all of childhood, boyhood, young adolescence, not having a friend, the sense of isolation. Um, And so his father, fearing, you know, just how bad he might get in that context, at that point took him out of school and decided um, I'm going, he, he was going to be privately tutored. And so um, Mr. Lewis arranged for Jack to live with um, Mr. Lewis's former headmaster, uh, W.T. Kirkpatrick, who had uh, retired to Surrey, um, Great Bookham, Surrey, which is just out, um, outside of London, what, 30 or 40 miles maybe. Um, but in a wild countryside, if you know the uh, Jane Austen's um, uh, novel, Emma, um, Emma is set in Great Bookham. Okay. Jane Austen's cousin was married to the rector there and Jane Austen visited there. And so Great Bookham is the, uh, the, the town uh, setting for Emma, uh, this wild countryside. So I know we're going to we're going to talk a bit about his conversion but again just trying to paint the scene of of where he was in his <laughs> pre-Damascus road moment um pretty angry arrogant uh obviously born and gifted very bright young man but as I understand from things you've you've written that you know he he considered himself a, a de, or he was a devout atheist I mean the word devout suggests to me that this was a very thoughtful decision to say I am done with anything related to a God, and I'm going to be committed to my atheism. I mean, was he that that radicalized, if you will? Or? Yes, he was. Yeah. Yes, he was, and proud of it. Mm-hmm. And that was part of his conceit and arrogance. He was superior because he uh, was smarter than people who believed in God. And um, there's a classical connection here. Um, the first uh, step toward atheism was the death of his mother. And uh, the, the, the problem of suffering simply stated, if there's a good, all-powerful, loving God, then why did he let my mother die? Hmm. And so that's one of the strong... Theodicy problem, yep. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So there's that. But then um, when he was uh, studying his Latin and reading the the myths, the classical myths, his teachers explained to them, now these are just made-up stories to explain natural phenomena. There are no gods and goddesses. It's just... Um, one culture's picture of, um, of um, an explanation for things they didn't understand. He made the um, uh, step from there to the Bible is just another culture's made-up stories about natural phenomenon and things they didn't understand. So, so um, the, uh, the study of, of uh, Latin actually was a step toward his atheism. And um, the final step, I mean, he was now an atheist. He didn't believe in God. But with W.T. Kirkpatrick, he gained the intellectual um, equipment for being a uh, devout atheist. Wow. Um, Kirkpatrick, um, unbeknownst to the elder Mr. Lewis, uh, had adopted materialism as his philosophy of life. And... um, uh, was a um, 
a hard-nosed materialist. He taught Lewis logic. He taught Lewis how to recognize assumptions and presuppositions and to cut them away and to deconstruct a logical fallacy. And so uh, Lewis credited Kirkpatrick for uh, his strong analytical skills and his his uh, skill in logic, which was was considerable. It, so, it sounds like um, I was going to say it sounds like the the phrase that's often uh, you know accredited to Lewis the idea of creating a more clever devil. It's like Kirkpatrick actually was created a very clever devil at that point. Yes, 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 he did, and and Lewis loved it. He absolutely loved it, and um, thrilled to it, and and. Um, Kirk Patrick brought him through um, some of the great, if you want to put that in quotes, great materialist philosophy of the 18th and, and 19th centuries, so that Lewis was well grounded philosophically yeah. Yeah. when he went up to, to Oxford and decided he was going to be a philosopher. Well, it's, you know, we're going to, we're going to pause here in just a moment and, and, later in the in the podcast i want to talk about or get your opinions on just kind of words uh of of encouragement to ed, our educators and to our parents and i think here again just to the point you've made it, it's the apple never falls far from the tree in these environments and so here's a student that has been taught really to think logic all these things that we pride ourselves in the classical christian world but you've just basically taught them to have the right tools without know how to I guess, form the right questions, but never have received the right answer. And I think that's almost, uh, you know, sometimes people say that's the danger of a classical education without a Christian underpinning is you've just equipped students to be very <laughs> dangerous. Uh, oh, yes. It sounds like that true. was Lewis's embodiment at this point. So, yeah. Well, why don't we take a quick break? I want to come back. We're going to jump into, you know, leave a little bit of a cliffhanger here. So he's this raging, devout atheist. I mean, how in the world does he become one of the greatest influential uh, Christian theologians and spokespersons uh, for uh, for most of our world. And I'd love to hear how that happened as well as some other elements of his childhood. But we'll be right back with Dr. Halpo. Do you wonder if the traditional system of higher education is the best way to keep your student on the path to flourishing? Are you tired of having to choose between a solid Christian education and practical, marketable skills? We've got good news. You don't have to settle, and your student doesn't have to make the choice between a solid Christian education and skills development. At Excel College, we've combined a world-class classical Christian education with an apprenticeship model that allows students to gain hands-on experience in the field of their choice while providing them with the context to grow intellectually, spiritually, practically, professionally, and missionally, all the while graduating debt-free. At Excel College, students learn how to build a life, not just make a living. Want to find out more? Sign up for a virtual presentation on our website at www.thexcelcollege.com backslash visit. Well, Dr. Pro, these are fascinating stories on C.S. Lewis. I know before we get to sort of his conversion, I'm, a couple of things I want to ask. One is just, again, back to if you could just follow Lewis around and those middle school, early high school days, um, what did he like to eat? I mean, that's probably a crazy question, but do we know what he liked to eat? <laughs> well, that was what began this this unintended three-volume biography. Oh, my goodness. Do I, tell. I, was, <laughs> I would, was just, he was, I was reading Lewis, and he, from time to time, he makes the comments he loves to eat. 
Uh, but he never said what he liked to eat. And I thought, what did he like to eat? And I thought, well, maybe he mentioned it in one of his letters. Can I guess fish and, and so chips? I, was it fish and chips? He, he just looked well, like he liked to eat fish and chips, but maybe that, not. Uh, th they weren't that big. Okay, um, all right. Well, when, when he was coming along, that that came in okay, later. Okay, so <laughs> um, but he did like like fish. Okay, he liked fish. He liked cold ham. Yeah. Um, for most of his life, he didn't care for the big hot Sunday roast, you know, big mm -hmm. plate of hot roast beef and and hot uh, vegetables that had been boiled all day long so that they <laughs> just turned to mush. That Lots was, of salt. He, he yeah. and his brother used to ridicule his father for having that meal every yeah. every lunch and supper well the british um, aren't known for their fine culinary taste and skills so yeah. maybe that's what but it he and he liked plain english cooking uh did not care for french food um he liked pub food and it would be the pub food of the 20s 30s 40s a pork pie mm. which is a massive thing um and if one pork pie was good two pork pies was better and um, uh, I, I would say, and there would be those who would disagree with me, but just the number of times he mentions it, I think he preferred cider to beer mm. and preferred beer to whiskey. Um, so he, he, he tended towards the less alcoholic yeah. drinks, but yeah. he certainly was not averse to, to well, alcohol. Yeah, I don't know that he was sort of the uh, the embodiment of healthiness, I'm sure, between no. those pork no. pies and his cider <laughs> and his smoking. he <laughs> It's amazing he made it to the 60s, but at any rate. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. in reading through his letters, yeah. I did not find him mention any particular food until the morning after he arrived at Great, Great Bookham and Mrs. Kirkpatrick baked what he called good old Irish soda bread. Mm. And so this hot bread with butter, um, he loved. I well, bet. how can you not? I'm getting hungry hearing this, but yes, that sounds amazing. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so well, tell me about, you know, as you're, as you were doing this research, I mean, where does one find this kind of information? I, it, you know, as I was reading about your research, I was had a flashback to being a child myself, probably you know under ten in the nineteen seventies time frame. And I remember uh, there was a my parents took me to a talk given by Walter Hooper, who I guess was Lewis's um, assistant, uh, maybe did editing for him. And and I just thought I was even at that age, I knew enough, I guess back then to think wow, this guy's amazing. He knew C.S. Lewis. So that generation's obviously long come and gone. Where do you find these details of his interest in his food, and where was that recorded? Well, Lewis wrote letters. He wrote dozens and dozens of letters every week. And when he was a boy, he wrote to his father. When he was in England, he would write to his father, almost every week. And um, when he finally got his friend, when he was 15 years old, just before he moved to, um, to Great Bookham, um, he began writing that friend. Arthur Greaves was his name. He lived across the street from the Lewises. And uh, he shared an interest in Norse mythology. That was the basis of their friendship, his love of northernness. Wow. And he wrote to Arthur every week. And he told Arthur 
everything that was on his mind, what he was thinking, what he was feeling, what he did in the afternoon, what he ate, uh, who he didn't like that he met, what was wrong with the rector, the silly things that happened, the peculiarities, what Kirkpatrick was like, what he was reading, um, what he was feeling, everything. And, and so that tells us um, week by week exactly mm. what was going on in his life. That's fascinating. Um, yeah. I think, we, you know, you just think what a wonderful moment in history pre you imagine what would Lewis have done with a smartphone? You know, I mean, that's just probably a longer conversation, but we would never have oh, no, any of these. Co- one. He yeah. would, he would throw it away. He'd throw it away. Right. Which everybody's cheering now. I knew he was a good guy, but you think about the uh, long form letter writing that is, uh, it's a lost art, but it really did capture those, those, uh, nuances of Lewis. So were you, at, go ahead. Yeah, for your, for your listeners, um, all of those letters have been published in a massive three-volume edition edited by Walter Hooper. Mm-hmm. It's probably 3,500 pages, uh, the, yeah. or maybe more than that, closer to, closer to 4,000 pages of letters. And so that was, and that one was of your, my primary source. Primary, I was going to say, can you still, are there still Lewis, uh, kind of side question, I guess, but I mean, can you go find in the archives of somewhere in Oxford some of those original source materials and kind of dig yeah. back in? Yes, they're all there. They There's uh, a pile of them at uh, Wheaton College in the Wade Center. There's a pile at the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Right. And then a number of individuals uh, own letters. For instance, Owen Barfield, um, the is he the third? Owen Barfield, the current Owen Barfield, has his grandfather's um materials lewis wrote to him all the time so i I think owen barfield has his grandfather's letters and um and so a number of people individuals have have letters um but hooper collected all he could find there will still be many more that that come to light in the years ahead yeah i have no doubt the people that received them that are now unearthing them so if you have a lewis letter from your great grandparent or something in your attic let us know because we will get it to you to add to the fourth volume well let's get to the i know people have been like well when is he going to explain the conversion so let's kind of jump into that so how did this uh you know very uh you know hardened uh, devoted atheist become this incredible de- believer what was the what were the moments of influence that led to okay that? every morning he was working with kirkpatrick they were reading uh the iliad in greek that's how kirkpatrick taught greek to lewis he handed him the iliad uh he handed him a, a greek dictionary um he read to lewis the first few pages in greek so that Lewis would know how to pronounce it. And then said, now you work on this for a few hours and I'll be back. And so he just started off. Wow. Well, it's a grand way to, to, to learn a language through something that's interesting, through a story. Um, I, I think so many people make mistakes. Well, even how we te- teach American children to read English, um, they can't, they, they struggle with it. My daughter, um struggle to read is you're just bored with the see the palm tree (laughs) right you know see spot run yeah (laughs) yeah that sort of thing yeah and my wife um got the the lion the witch in the wardrobe and said all right um uh you read the first sentence and i'll read the rest of the page there you go and 
by the end of the book, um, she could read. Well, she reads 1200 right. words. So she, she does. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. the, the thing is that the, the story. So, so Lewis was fascinated by stories. He loved stories. And while he was working on, you know, uh, literature, grammar, history, philosophy during the day at night in his pleasure reading, he read the great books of the Western canon. And he started, uh, and most people don't need to start with the Iliad. He started with some books that Arthur Greaves put him on to, Jane Austen. Mm, interesting. So Greaves introduced him to, to Jane Austen. And Jane Austen is a great storyteller. But she also does something that uh, Lewis later said was very important in apologetics. He said the most important apologetics is not more little Christian books, but more little books by Christians on every subject with the Christianity latent. And this is what you get with the Jane Austen story, that Christianity undergirds her understanding of reality, her understanding of the world. And so as Lewis was reading all of these things from the 19th to the 15th to the 13th century, um, he was falling in love with the values. Hmm. And uh, one particular story plot kept coming up. Um, he found it first with William Morris, um, the well at the world's end. And then he found it in the uh, quest for the Holy Grail. And then he found it in uh, the Fairy Queen, uh, what, about 1595. Then he found it in George MacDonald's novel, Fantasties. That would be a 19th mm -hmm. century novel. And here's the basic plot. The hero um, goes off on the quest for the great thing, uh, the pearl of great price, and he must go to the end of the world to obtain it. And along the way, he must beat the unbeatable foe, go where the brave dare not go, march into hell for a heavenly cause. Uh, you know, it's the Don Quixote. Yeah. Yep. Um, and um, once he reaches the great thing and achieves the great thing, um, he's changed by the, by the whole process. And when he returns home, he's a different person. Hmm. And it's essentially the, um, uh, the, the, the Christian life, the Christian journey. And it's the way he told his own conversion account uh, when he first wrote it. Um, the Pilgrim's Regress. So he fell in love with this story long before he's a Christian. And then he finds it in a different version, The Pilgrim's Progress. And he read The Pilgrim's Progress four times before he became a Christian because he loved the story. And, and the problem with these stories is they're full of values that are so attractive Um you know, loyalty and kindness and love and generosity and on and on and on truth. And, um, and the problem for Lewis was he lived in a materialistic universe that he and Kirkpatrick had constructed. And in a universe of brute matter, there's no right and wrong, no uh, good and bad, no beautiful and ugly. There's just what is. Mm. And so his project, once the war was over and um, 
he was trying to come up with some explanation for values other than God. He, he called it the, um, the Prometheus hypothesis. The, in, Interesting. In the, uh, yeah. You know, Pre Prometheus was the one who uh, uh, gave the gift of fire to humans, took Right. Uh, and um, so the, the Prometheus idea is that values came from God. And he's trying to come up with an alternative to that view. And he looked at every possible alternative and backed himself into a corner. What a fascinating. That Gave up <laughs> just, and said yeah. they've got to come from God. And if you want a simple account of this, read the first section of Mere Christianity. Sure. Yeah. Right and wrong is a clue to the meaning of the universe. And you'll see the steps by which he came to the conclusion, oh, drat, there's a God. <laughs> Do you think and this happens? He called himself the most reluctant convert. Right, which is a great great title do you do you think or is your sense that that sort of was there sort of a damascus road like in a within a one-hour window everything sort of collapsed and and then there was an awakening no. or was it really a slow simmer into this so no it was forever <laughs> i mean that the crack you know initially when he was still at great bookham he loved these stories and yet he believed in the materialistic universe. So it's, it's what we call cognitive dissonance. He was holding two contradictory ideas at one time uh, without resolution. And it took from what, 1917 until 1930 for him to finally give up. Well, and you, you know, it's, I, my, say there's a god right so that's okay. when he became a theist i mean that is a slow simmer and and then yeah and again i, I really do want to come back later because we're not gonna have time for the second book he wrote and the third going all the way into you know the time of his death in 63 but i think it's right. you know what i think what i'm hearing and i it is a classical christian advocate educator what i find so encouraging and i've, I've you know it's it's i think a lot of people listening that are parents who've put their kids in these schools you know, they know there's generically value in reading great books and reading Lewis because we're forcing ourselves to think about these trans transcendent ideas and important questions. But what Lewis is embodying is is a living testimony of someone who basically kept encountering, as you were describing, he's following in love with values, not knowing what those were. Then, and, and I I think that's something that I, I want to make sure we're emphasizing more and more as a movement, because so often what we're doing, which is the education effectively Lewis was given, is seen as just a throwback or a nostalgia or somebody, you know, some quirky people that like reading the old dusty books. But this is not, it's actually this living experience of stories that he found so compelling that drew him to pursue truth, goodness, and beauty that he didn't even have a name for. I mean, it's a beautiful yeah, exa attraction. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. In, yeah. in in what you described as the universe of brute matter. I mean, I can't think of that. That's a book title right there. That is <laughs> welcome to today in our world. It is a universe <laughs> of brute yeah. matter. And we are longing in our generation around us is longing for something beautiful and transcendent, which is, um, is in other words, the same God is still at work using the same alluring attraction to something of himself that drew Lewis, which is, which is encouraging. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I want to, we're going to take a break. I want to come back and, and again, just encourage, uh, you know, it's us to talk about how might, what are the, what are the lessons from Lewis as far as it impacts classrooms and homes? But 
you know, before we, we, we pause here, just thinking again about um, Lewis's influence. So clearly it was what he was reading, but I know often in the podcast we talk about what Chap Clark, who's been a professor at Fuller, wrote a book on called Sticky Faith, and he says, what is it that are in young people that go the distance in their faith? And he talks about the five-to-one ratio, meaning for every one student, there are probably five <clears throat> key influencers, adults in their life, be it certainly their parents or their pastor or a professor or a youth leader. So who were those? We had Kirkpatrick was probably part of the negative uh, five to one. Who were part of that? Were there, there had to be people, you've mentioned some, but who else was in that great cloud of witnesses, if you will, that came around Lewis that really helped push him on that journey? Um, you wouldn't have found, um, a Christian presence that had an influence on him okay. until he was in his twenties. Um, there were Christians around, but you know, there are Christians around who don't have much influence. <laughs> right. Sure. And you have some with negative influence, his headmaster who beat him. Well, clearly that was, was a clergyman. Yeah. That doesn't help. That does not help. Right. That does not help at all. So, so first Christians, tells us all about that but when he went up to oxford and um first he was studying philosophy and um there was no christian influence around him in those days um quite the contrary he 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 was surrounded by uh the new thinkers Mm -hmm. Um, and he called this his new look um the spirit of the age he talks about that in um Pilgrim's Regress. Mm. Um, but when he switched to the English school, he, he couldn't get a When he graduated in philosophy, he, he couldn't get a job. And so he decided, well, if I get an extra degree, I'll be more marketable. That's, so every, did a one, that's every parent's it, fear, by the way. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, so he didn't find philosophy marketing, so he did English. Okay. <laughs> Far more lucrative, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. I was an English major, and well, I still use my English. Yes. Well, you, you've turned I, out quite well, I can tell. I, yes. I, I can still read English fluently. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> All but, right, carry um, on. So he, um, he started the English course, did it in a year. It, it, you know, you don't do a college degree in a year. The reason he could do it was because he had read everything hmm. that took everybody else the full term to read. He had, he had read everything in his nighttime pleasure reading in, in Great Bookham. Wow. Um, his first Christian he met was Neville Coghill. And what impressed him about Coghill was he was smarter than anybody else in the English school. But he always impressed Lewis as one of the characters out of one of these great medieval romances, and he wasn't putting it on. He was, this was the way he was. He was a gallant, noble, courteous Mm. figure, and it struck Lewis, he, he really is like that. Lewis, at this point in his life, was cynical. He was pessimistic very negative. And so here's this person who's right out of his favorite stories. So that had an impact on him, just his being. Um, Then um, a new one that came to town uh, when he started teaching was J.R.R. Tolkien, the new professor of Anglo-Saxon. They both came uh, to the faculty the same year. 
both on the English faculty. And um, this was a friendship that was an acquired taste. They weren't immediate friends, but then Tolkien started a group that was going to read old Icelandic. <laughs> Yawn. <laughs> that probably doesn't but, happen too often in, with the 20 somethings these days, but yes. Sure. But it opened up this yeah. Norse mythology that Lewis was wild about. And Lewis had, had tried his hand at old Icelandic sometime before. And so this was just a dream come true. And especially with somebody who apparently also liked Norse mythology, Tolkien. So um, Lewis and Coghill went along to this group. And that was the beginning of the friendship with Tolkien. Tolkien was a, um, a pious Roman Catholic, deep believer. And um, he was also secretly writing these stories. Mm about a made-up place called Middle-earth um, that had all the, all the flavor of northernness. Mm. And so um, this was 19, uh, from 1925 until 1930 uh, when right. Lewis became a believe, uh, believed in God. He probably uh, believed in God at the end of January 1930. He wrote several letters to his closest friends talking about the fact that, um, you know, he'd, he'd come to this point. Um, and then it was another year and a half, uh, September, October 1931, that he became a Christian. The hang up, and he, he suspected, oh no, I may be, but the hang up, um, he, he told uh, Tolkien and Dyson one evening as they had, were walking late in the college grounds at, at Maudlin College, where Lewis was a fellow, uh, I can accept the idea of God, all right, but I don't understand why God would take on flesh and then get himself killed. That, <laughs> what, what, what is that about? It is rather absurd if you just take it at face value. So that's what Paul said. It's, yes, it's foolishness. it's foolishness. So how did Lewis reconcile this? And um, so as they talked about, uh, Lewis said, you know, it it just seems like the same old mythology you find everywhere of the dying and rising God. And by the end of the conversation, Lewis came to realize that the only difference between Jesus and um, the other mythologies, the Baal story or the Osiris story, um, was that this was the one that actually happened. <laughs> minor detail, but yeah. A minor detail. Historical reality. Him, yeah. Because there is a, a problem. Why do you find this story all over the place? Yeah. And um, uh, yeah. so uh, that mulled over in his mind for a few days and then writing to the to a the Whipsnade Zoo outside of London. His brother Warney had a motorcycle with a sidecar and he was bumping along in the sidecar. And he said, when I when I left Oxford, I didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. But when I got to the zoo, I did. <laughs> Maybe it's Warney's <laughs> I don't know. I don't know when the change came. I just know that 
That's what I believe. That's so fat. Yeah, that's better than Damascus Road. That's called sidecar conversion. When maybe your yeah. bro- your brother is driving at a, a breakneck speed and you think you're going to die any moment, maybe that was part. Of it. Anyway, that, that'll do it. That That'll might have been it. it. Well, let's take <laughs> let's take another break. We're going to come back, and I want to uh, we're going to continue this fascinating conversation and talk a little bit about just some impact of Lewis maybe for us today in classrooms and in homes. We'll be right back with Dr. Halpo. He's worked with families for more than 30 years as a licensed professional counselor and marriage family therapist. It's time for a quick encouragement on the best practices of raising the next generation. We call it a McCurdy moment. So Keith, you know, we're all kind of creatures of habits. And I think especially as parents, it's easy just to live life day after day and become actually rather unaware of the things that we inadvertently are doing. They're actually changing and influencing the behaviors and attitudes of our children right around us. What are some tools that we could implement to maybe be more self-aware? You know, I had a question just like that this past week at a school in Texas. I was doing a, a parent retreat. And, and so I challenged the parents after the first night of the retreat. I said, you know, if you want to get a good snapshot of what's going on in your family, answer these five questions and maybe even get your kids feedback on them. And here are the five questions. One is, what am I modeling? You know, and the way you get to that is you ask your kids, what, what do you see me doing all the time? What do you see that's important to me? The second question is, what do I require of my kids? You know, because so much of what we deal with today is we're not onboarding our children to life. We're really not requiring much. The third question is, how am I equipping them? Am I actually teaching my children something they don't know, teaching them to handle something new? Uh, The fourth is, how do I hold them accountable? This starts giving you a good idea of, you know, how do I really engage with discipline? And then the fifth is, what do we celebrate? You know, because too many times parents get focused on just the negative or just behavioral, you know, modification or whatever. So I I gave this assignment and the next morning, at the beginning of the retreat, the next day, I asked, I said, would anyone like to share if you did this assignment? And a dad threw his hand up and he said, yeah. And I said, well, what would you like to share? He said, my son says I'm all about work. Oh, no. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> and I asked him, to, asked him to elaborate because work is not bad. You know, and you want to demonstrate a good work ethic. And he said, so I asked my son, you know, what he meant. And he said, dad, you come home and you're always texting people and you say it's work. You're always on emails and you say it's work. You're always busy and you can't do certain things because you say I'm dealing with work. And so for this dad, it was very, I think, eye-opening and convicting. Uh, and so again, if, if you really want to take a snapshot in your family, ask yourself those five things. What am I modeling? What am I requiring? How are we equipping? How do we hold them accountable? And what do we celebrate? Wow. And I think that will really give you a picture of how your family's functioning. Yeah, it's hard to hold that mirror up because we see things we maybe don't want to see, but it's the only way to move forward and, and bring positive change for sure. That is correct. Well, thanks so much, Keith. Got a question for Keith to answer on a future McCurdy moment? Well, send it to us at info at basecamplive.com and learn more about Keith McCurdy on the speaking page on the Basecamp Live website. Well, Dr. Poe, we've we've got so many more stories to tell, and, and I, we'll certainly have to have you back to kind of continue on. We've only gotten Lewis to his point of conversion. There's a lot of Lewis still to talk about, but maybe just at the end here, knowing that a number of uh, many folks who are listening are parents in K through 12 classical Christian schools, and many folks who are listening who are also educating these students, uh, thinking about all the 
collective stories and wisdom, things you've seen in Lewis, if you could just speak to parents for a moment, what would you say to them that would be a word of encouragement from what you've seen? Well, first of all, I think um, many parents are concerned and sometimes worried and anxious about their children and their faith journey and where they're going to wind up. Um, Lewis is an example of the fact that it isn't entirely up to us, um, that there is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Thank goodness it's <laughs> actually, not. A, yeah, actually doing a whole lot more than we are and, and much more uh, productively. So here's Lewis as a as a teenager, um, a, a least likely soul to, to wind up in church in their 30s. Um, That's a great. And, yeah. Yeah, it's a great point. So um, Lewis himself was an enormous believer in prayer and the importance of prayer. So, so um, a little more faith in the Lord to um, honor your uh, desires for your children. And um, we were talking about reading and the importance of reading and books and that sort of thing. I would add one thing about it. Remember that... Um, for Lewis, those books that he read were not his work. They were his pleasure. Hmm. And I think it's important that um, children and teenagers experience reading as pleasure rather than punishment. Hmm. Um, and so uh, they may not want to read uh, the kind of book you want them to read, but there are plenty of books out there. That give them a, a different choice, different uh, remember, Lewis didn't care for detective stories, and yet this was what Dorothy L. Sayers and G.K. Chesterton wrote mm. um, and has a profound implication for uh, faith. We won't go into that this time. If we, <laughs> you want to some other time, we can talk about the detective story as an apologetic. But That would um, be interesting. Yeah. So not everybody likes every kind of, of story. So find find the kind of story that uh, delights them and um, op open that to them. That's a great recommendation. Uh, and I think that's part of, I think the challenge and maybe we could help each other and we should be helping each other's parents as educators, because if it's either, it feels like sometimes go read the, the quote, great books, which can be, uh, you know, that's hard late night pleasure reading, going through a great book, at least for most kids, I think, or it's kind of jump to the world of contemporary very thin, very, you know, Captain Underpants kind of reading books. And it's just, you know, what does that look like today when Lewis is selecting a Jane Austen? I mean, that is probably considered for most kids today, pretty heavy reading for, uh, you know, for pleasure reading. But, you know, how, what are those sources and, and books? That might be an interesting question for later, too. Yeah. And but it's the sort of thing that uh, parents can collaborate on, um, you know, get together and talk about um, books they've they've heard of and that sort yeah. so it doesn't have to be a an 18th century or a 16th century book that's good um, right the, the the idea would be you start off closer to the child's uh world and then expand the world at least mm. that was the direction lewis lewis took what when he yep. was real little and started getting interested in books it was peter rabbit beatrix potter that was for Lewis one of the magical moments of his childhood. Yeah. Um, 
so I think uh, parents collaborating together and getting ideas uh, for books. Well, and it certainly sounds yeah. like just, I was going to say, just awakening wonder and imagination seems to be so much a part of what was instilled early into Lewis to create that desire and appetite. And then ultimately he, he wrote in that style. So yeah. uh, uh, another thing very important, I think, is the whole idea of, of uh, childhood and teenage friendship. And how do we encourage some friendships and discourage other friendships? Uh, Lewis talked a lot about the inner ring and his first experience of the inner ring, that little cabal of bullies, uh, was when he was in grammar school. And um, he was writing about it in uh, that hideous strength uh, in the mid-1940s when he was experiencing the inner ring at Oxford University. And so what kind of friends do you want your child to have? Now, he wrote a great deal about friendship and um, mm. friendship came to be the most important um, uh, experience of his life, yeah. except his marriage. Uh, so um, finding ways to help children have friends and, and that awkward child. Um, a lot of parents listening right now have what might be called an awkward child. Um, I know what that's like because I have amblyopia. It's an eye disorder. Mm. means I only have one working eye, which means I could never play sports mm. at all. Um, couldn't catch a ball, hit a ball, throw a ball, uh, do anything. Um, couldn't quite tell where the ball was in the air. It was as likely to hit me in the face as anything else. <laughs> so in that sense, I was an, an awkward child. And so um, friendship was very important to me coming along and the friends that I had. Um, so um, uh, that would be, uh, I think, important. One thing we talked about was that older adult. And um, a lot of times uh, in adolescence, uh, teenagers reject their parents, you know, that, that quest to be independent, um, and they cease confiding in their parents. So it's very important to have um, in, adults in their life who are safe, reliable, wise. And um, Lewis gravitated toward W.T. Kirkpatrick. So uh, I think one of the most important ministries of the church is to provide older adults who don't have to be involved in the youth group. Mm -hmm. So often we want, well, the parents of the youth to be involved with the youth group, but I, I think that's the least important group to be involved with the yeah. youth group. Yeah. When I was a pastor, we found that the most effective ones working with youth were people in their sixties. Because mm -hmm. uh, youth want to just have a heavy duty rap <laughs> with somebody who nods and <laughs> listens to them. Yeah. Pays right. them attention. That's right. If we don't, the pusher on the corner yeah. will pay them attention. Yeah. The Kirkpatrick's. Well, that's, that's a great word. Well, let's, so shifting the question now to, to the educators, those who are in many cases, very much advocating Lewis in classrooms and, and talking through his materials, literature, what, what word of encouragement advice might you give our educators? Um, and this, uh, I think the, the most important thing for a teacher of any subject, I've mentioned it a little earlier, is to convey your own love of your subject and that your subject isn't work. 
uh, it ought to be joy. And my my most memorable classes from uh, from growing up were were English and history. And um, science was that way until high school, and then all of a sudden it, it wasn't joy and pleasure anymore. It was work and punishment. Mm. And um, I, I think that makes an enormous difference to how a student perceives the subject. I sat in on a colleague's Old Testament class today, and it was just fabulous. And the students were excited and they were doing, <laughs> they don't know this is what they were doing. They were doing tedious structural analysis. Oh my goodness. Only it was fun. It well, was exciting. Um, well, so that's love fun. your subject. Yeah. Well, and that's, and I think, you know, just hearing you tell these stories again, are we too quick to maybe dive into the deeper philosophical elements or theological elements of Lewis if we're teaching on Lewis and miss these very rich human uh, stories of just his own personhood and how he became who he was that then influenced what he wrote. So I, I love what you've done and the research that you've brought to life to us today. Anything else to teachers that you'd, you'd mention? Be encouraged because you never know what impact you're having on someone 15 or 20 years from now. Yeah. Um, it, it is there. If you have concern for your students, um, the impact is being made and the Holy Spirit is present in the situation. Yeah. Well, and you've had 20 years now of teaching Lewis in the classroom. So you've, I'm sure, got even more stories of your own of seeing Lewis awaken a student who then has a, a dramatic uh, you know, change in their life. Maybe it's not a, always a one-to-one, -one, but it's part of that overall great cloud of witnesses of encouragement to the students through Lewis. So um, I, that's, I'm sure, lots of stories there of just how Lewis helps awaken modern students. Well, Dr. Pro, thank you so much for your, your time today. Um, you've got these two other volumes, The Atheist to Apologist Stage, I guess 1918 and 1945, and then your third and most recent volume, uh, Bachelor to Widower, 1945 to 1963. So a lot more stories in there. And then your third volume has just recently come out. Is that correct? Yes, it came out in October. Okay. The... So so if folks are in, uh, the obvious answer is we'll go to Amazon and look it up. Is that where else might folks find more about your work and learn more about some of the unique initiatives that you're, you've undertaken here with Lewis? Well, several of us... Um operate the Inklings Fellowship. We have a website, inklingsfellowship.org. We conduct a, um, a retreat every spring at Montreat, North Carolina, high in the Smoky Mountains near Asheville. It's actually Rivendale in the Misty Mountains, gorgeous place. <laughs> and then um, uh, every third year, we go to Oxford for an Inklings Week in Oxford. And we've just come back, um, had a grand time, and it's these are, events are open to anyone who's interested. And so we'd love to have you join us. Do you have typically, is it more educators or parents or a little bit of everybody? It's a mixed group. It's a mixed group That's fantastic. of backgrounds. Yeah. Um, and it's also a mixed age group. Historically, we've been about 40% under 30 and 60% okay. over 30. Do you have to dress like a hobbit or something, or is it okay to... Uh, no, okay. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> or show up as a in, in a wardrobe. Probably more the wardrobe option would be a, 
jumping through a wardrobe at the beginning of each session or something. So at any rate, I'm being silly, but you know, there's, there's certainly a, a, a wonderful camaraderie that you've created around, uh, around Lewis and the stories that you've awakened us to that perhaps no one ever knew of before. So thank you for your great research and the great books that you've put together. And we do look forward to having you back on again. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Hey there, Basecamp Live listeners. This is Davy's daughter, Hannah here. And I want to congratulate this amazing podcast on almost five years of incredible content, enriching interviews, and over 200 episodes. So that has brought so much encouragement to people. And thank you for being a part of that. Thank you for supporting this message, this mission. And there are a couple ways that you can help in sharing that message. First of all, please leave a five-star review on whatever app you are using to listen to this podcast. You can also share it with a friend. That's a great way to get the message out about Basecamp Live. And of course, share your story with us at info at basecamplive.com. There we'll also answer all your questions and more. And any topics that you'd like to hear too, please send them there to info at basecamplive.com. We'll see you next week, everybody. Thanks.